Um, as is part of the course, I've changed the title of my paper. Um, but it's the same sort of subject. And I'm not writing about necessarily a single project, but rather about my um, research into mental health in general. Um, okay. And it's about 20 minutes. So, it's April 2007, and I've told my brother to go and see a new play called The Wonderful World of Dissocia. It's brilliant, I tell him. He rings me after the show to say that he loved it too. But he also says it'll change how he treats the patients on his ward. He says he'll remember to be more gentle, less functional. That it's easy to forget to be gentle some days. He says he'll remember that he is at work, but they are, amongst other things, in pain. I'm doing my PhD, and this moment is encouraging for what it says about art and humans. It's August 2014. And I've just seen a play at the Edinburgh Fringe called The Eradication of Schizophrenia in Western Lapland. I do some background research about the play's content and I start telling a psychiatrist I know about the development of open dialogue therapy in Western Lapland and the startling improvement in outcomes for those living under the description of schizophrenia. I'm relating how the Finnish model has apparently contradicted the received wisdom that the long-term use of neuroleptics for treating schizophrenia is indispensable. If it really worked, we'd have heard of it, she replied. I discussed the power of the pharmaceutical companies to author and disseminate research that will be profitable and to bury that which won't. If it really worked, we'd have heard about it. I stare at the wall and instead we talk about what to have for our tea. It's November 2015 and I'm writing a book and I'm suicidal. I ring someone close to me who's a psychiatric nurse to ask for advice. Ring the GP. That's just your depressed brain talking. You just need some drugs. I resisted. Okay, fine, we'll just put it in one of your plays then. I rang the GP and got a prescription in a consultation that lasted less than five minutes. This time, as with all the others, I do not take the drugs. I do not kill myself. I do make a piece of art. And I continue to write the book, even though at times the synergy between my research topics and my personal experiences feels like quicksand. I start seeing a therapist and I talk and I'm listened to and it's a bit easier some of the time. I begin with these three vignettes because they frame the three difficult feelings I wish to discuss with you all today, namely tenderness, frustration and despair. And partly, I'd like to do this simply in order to reassure myself that it's not only me who feels tender, frustrated and in despair during the course of a given research project or sometimes in the course of a given day. But less flippantly, I'm interested in thinking about the limits of empathy and the problems of vulnerability. This latter point is somewhat, a somewhat contrary one insofar as I'd like to explode the false universal of wellness or invulnerability but without simultaneously advocating or fetishising a culture of vulnerability. In this sense, I share Frank Ferreira's concern regarding, quote, the phenomenal expansion of psychological labels and therapeutic terms, whose main legacy so far is the cultivation of a unique sense of vulnerability. Ferreira critiques notions including self-fulfilment and self-actualisation as forms of therapeutic governance, arguing that such a therapy culture posits the self in a distinctly fragile and feeble form and insists that the management of life 
um, requires the continuous intervention of therapeutic expertise. It's my contention that empathy may also be a limited concept insofar as it's often pred predicated on bogus claims of knowing and also all too often functions as a full stop or a final objective in critical dialogues about difficult feelings as opposed to being their beginning. Empathy in this sense can operate like tolerance or recognition. It performs gestures of care without actually altering the structures that might produce the conditions of exclusion, violence, isolation and so forth that necessitate empathy, tolerance, recognition. And I, for one, have no desire to be empathised with, tolerated or recognised on such terms. I'd like to critique, then, vulnerability and empathy in order to move towards an argument for tenderness and for companionship as ways to think with, not about, difficult feelings. I wonder if we consider ourselves as tender companions, both of our research subjects but also of ourselves within these projects, if this might be one way to consider how to navigate the practice of researching difficult feelings. My focus is on mental health because that's my research area, but hopefully there'll be some resonances that cut across political identities and projects that might be generally productive. <clears throat> A common narrative that cleaves to pathological mood is that it is exceptional and unreachable. It is, in this way, an undiscoverable landscape. For example, Lewis Walpair narrates his own depression thus. Severe depression is a weird state. If you can describe your depression, you almost certainly have not truly experienced it. Severe depression borders on being beyond description. And there's a certain orthodoxy of thinking inherent in that statement. But the sheer volume of artistic work about melancholy alone testifies to an alternative possibility. Now, of course, the volubility of work may paradoxically underscore the unnarratability or the unspeakability of extreme experiences, and work in pain studies and trauma studies has paid much attention to the understanding that to render such experiences in language or image is always and necessarily to partially falsify them. But perhaps... If one dispenses with any totalised notion of understanding, a different attitude of empathic looking and listening is fostered. If I explain to you all that falling in love feels like having the whole of the night sky poured into your chest, such a description does not require sameness in order for you to have a feeling encounter with some of the qualities of what I might be trying to communicate. You may not feel exactly as I do, but that does not render such feeling fundamentally unreachable. Instead, feeling is hyphenated, furling between bodies in such moments of expression. Moreover, it's the contention of this paper that an aspect of the desire to keep certain types of experience, like depression, beyond understanding, in fact marks a desire for these experiences to be taken more seriously and to therefore become more legitimate. I'd like to argue, however, that legitimacy may thrive better by being presumed. Legitimacy, I propose, may sediment more securely in acts of trying, however failingly, to reach the apparently unreachable. And it's to this endeavour that I think the artists I try to explore in my work are committed, all the while in a ready embrace with the inevitable incompleteness of such ventures. In its most basic form, then, this paper is an argument for tenderness. 
It's an argument to be tender and to tend to one another in more radically open and uncertain manners. To tend, as a verb, first emerges in the 14th century and means to turn one's ear, give auditory attention, listen, hearken. Later developments of the term include the adjective tender, meaning soft, delicate, easily broken, divided, compressed or injured. To grow tender, meaning to become soft or be moved with pity or compassion. To tender, meaning to offer for acceptance, often goods, services, a plea. Or as a noun, a tender is one who tends or waits upon another. Etymologically, one can trace connections to both the French tendre, to hold out, offer, and to the Latin tendere, to stretch, hold forth. This striking configuration of resonances is apposite for the subject of madness and the arguments that I'm trying to advance today and in my work. The temporal dynamic of waiting invests tenderness with a quality of patience. The recurrent understanding of tenderness as involving an offer, a stretch, a holding forth, reminds us that tenderness is an intersubjective dialogue. Moreover, it's not a certain gesture. To be tender, or to tender, is to make an offer without assurance of its reception. Tenderness, in this sense, cannot simply be done to you. Rather, it must happen with your consent. In this sense, tenderness is vulnerable. It risks rejection. Thus, tenderness as both word, feeling and action does not swagger with certainty. It does not know it is right in the moment it makes its offer. Indeed, the tentativeness written into its conceptual shape renders tenderness a gesture of not quite knowing or not yet knowing. In this sense, it's perhaps distinct from the more bogus promises of empathy that sometimes lay claim to knowing and to identification. To be tender with you is to admit the thresholds of our difference and to persist in the offer none the same. Tenderness is therefore a relation. It calls for an interlocutor. Moreover, it runs counter to resilience. It privileges the human condition of being easily broken or divided over the false universal of invulnerability. Indeed, tenderness is ordinary, insofar as it can also connote day-to-day pain that is simply to be borne, carried, held. Furthermore, tenderness emphasises sensation and tactility. It is, in this sense, an embodied phenomenon. The examples I choose to study evidence the dire need for tenderness in how we think of and respond to madness. Furthermore, the means of achieving such tenderness is found in their varied practices that cumulatively make plain the urgency of fleshy listening, of listening that extends beyond ears and is dispersed throughout the body in acts of radically generous relational exchange. In this spirit, I don't deploy tenderness as an overarching theory done to artistic practice, a theory that will unlock a book's secrets or stitch up its gaps. Instead, I offer tenderness as a conceptual gesture towards my research subject. I hope that such a stretching forth on my part may in turn enable you to hold the different stories I'm calling upon you to hear as readers. Indeed, I echo Arthur W. Frank's call that one's critical obligation when researching is to consider what kind of listener a given story calls upon you to be. Tender listening in this sense is less a fixed methodology then 
than a moving, critical atmosphere. <clears throat> Wendy Brown critiques political categories of identity that are founded on states of injury, woundedness, or vulnerability. Building on Nietzsche's idea of resentiment, the moralizing revenge of the powerless, the triumph of the weak as weak, she exposes how far any challenge to power from a position of injury ultimately reiterates impotence, reinscribes incapacity and powerlessness. Brown interrogates such reactive identities, arguing that they necessarily remain tethered to the violent history that produced them. She says, in its emergence as a protest against marginalisation or subordination, politicised identity thus becomes attached to its own exclusion. In Troubling Pain is a foundational political claim. Brown argues for a movement away from identity, I am, toward desire, I want. She claims that such a shift enacts a dynamic departure from an identity fixed and grounded in a wounded past and propels us politically toward a more open, alternative political future. In arguing for the value of tenderness, I'm not arguing for mad as a fixed political category of woundedness. Indeed, I advocate a shift from the fixity of identity to the fluidity of experience as a model of, ex of thinking, and from de deficit to capacity as a way of understanding the politics of such experiences, from I am schizophrenic to I hear voices, from I am bipolar to I sometimes experience cosmic connections that other people do not. Echoing Brown, then, I'm less concerned with what madness is than what it wants and what it needs. In listening tenderly, I argue that one returns vital dynamics of futurity, agency and power to those of us called mad. Furthermore, I share Anne Svechkovich's understanding that attending to the politically generative capacities of experiences such as depression is not to engage in Panglossian thinking. She writes that depression is not, quote, thereby converted into a positive experience. It retains its associations with inertia and despair, but these feelings, moods and sensibilities become sites of publicity and community formation. End quote. So she suggests that we ought to try and understand depression as hidden knowledge that's making a bid for communication. In this sense, she shares my argument that many of the experiences that might be termed mad might also be usefully understood as protest against or resistance to the norms, values and roles we are expected to adhere to and adopt. In understanding madness as acts of personal and political communication that have no need of empathetic identity, identification or sameness then, we may make room to hear what it actually wants and needs and thereby hold its presence more tenderly. In addition to proposing this move from empathy to tenderness, a move that I hope enacts a conceptual and discursive shift away from knowing and transaction and towards feeling uncertainty, I'd now like to contemplate the notion of companionship. And I'm going to do this by briefly considering a few panels from a graphic memoir by Ellen Forney entitled Marbles, Mania, Depression, Michelangelo and Me. Marbles is Ellen Forney's graphic memoir recounting her bipolarity. First published in 2012, it joins a burgeoning body of comic book work centred on mental distress and therapy, work that synthesises the pictographic and textual as a means to articulate non-normative states. 
For example, the forms simultaneity, perceptual dynamism, and plural foci for attention combine to create an animated mode of reading that's effective. Further, comics have a notable capacity to give complex form to the habitually unspoken in their engagement with presence and absence via the visual movement between frame and gutter. Indeed, it's the visual qualities of the form in general, and in this example in particular, that I want to draw our attention to. I'm concerned with the collision between text and image and how this might create a performative feeling encounter with distress. I propose that marbles, in its atomization of manic atmospheres, creates a space in which to understand literature as aesthetic companionship. This, in turn, yields valuable insights with regard to the values of keeping distress company. The novel's also really problematic in its adherence to biomedical models, mood hygiene, and normative narrative arcs of overcoming, but I'm going to put that aside for today. Because the memoir is interesting for us to conclude with, insofar as it offers a visual invitation to consider if understanding creative labours, such as academic research, in terms of tender companionship, affords us any particular methodological stepping stones when navigating difficult terrain. If companionship is non-final, always in a state of perpetual becoming, then how might thinking of ourselves as tender, critical companions shape our research processes? How might this invite us to think about the company we keep with our subjects and also the type of companion we wish to be? Arthur W. Frank writes, When ill persons try to talk in medical ease, they deny themselves the drama of their personal experience. In the same volume, At the Will of the Body, Reflections on Illness, Frank argues for illness writing as an act of tactile intimacy. He says, I want what I have written to be touched as one touches letters, folding and refolding them, responding to them. I hope ill persons will talk back to what I have written. Talking back is how we find our own experiences in a story someone else has written, end quote. Forney's invitation to be company, to help us find ourselves in a story someone else has written, works in triplicate. Firstly, Forney seeks company in historical lineage. While not unproblematic in its essentialising of a manic subjectivity, nonetheless this desire to situate herself in a canon of mad forerunners sketches a sense of companionship for a reader. Further, Forney describes figures such as William Styron as company and children's books as refuge during periods of profound distress. More specifically, she says her canon of mad artists offer her, quote, connection, context, perspective, inspiration, company. Secondly, alongside Forney's own pursuit of company for her overwhelming feeling states, witnessed in the search for a people with whom she can walk, is a creation of just such companionship for her readership. Note, for example, the sketched hands captured here that simultaneously foreground Fawney's hand-held hunt for companionship in the same instance as it mirrors our own holding of her tale. However, in contradistinction to these more organised narrative frames, there's simultaneously a different, altogether more atmospheric, messy mode of communication at play. Indeed, I'd suggest that it's precisely in the moments that Forney breaks the form, exceeds the frame, defies narration or disturbs comics convention that marbles evokes striking feeling dialogues. 
It's here that we find our third type of companionship. In these panels, one is invited to engage in a felt encounter with distress. Furthermore, she herself finds company in stars and snowflakes and trees in manners that return, us, uh, that return a reader to the ecological qualities of being a person. She sketches her sense of connectedness as though her body were a system of rivers, her expansive thoughts popping like corn, her terror a nest of caged rats. It is here in utilising metaphor and the performative qualities of comics, the dynamic collisions of text and image to create unstable motion, that marbles startles and arrests the reader in a feeling dialogue. Moreover, if performance is always in some senses metaphorical, it is always both what it is and something else entirely, then this invites a simultaneous sense of presence and distance, or proximity rather, and distance that's politically productive. In this way, she creates space for marginalised elements of feeling that otherwise resist ready incorporation. <coughs> Indeed, in eschewing normative explanation, Forney here creates room for a reader to sensately talk back to her manic atmosphere, to find complicated feeling within it. So it's precisely when moving away from describing mood as individual pathology and towards evoking a manic atmosphere as a relational feeling state that Marbles makes understanding a different, expanded, tender possibility. Indeed, in these ambiguous moments of graphic articulation, which have no need of emotional sameness, one is invited to both find and be tender company. Perhaps a challenge for us today, then, is to think about how to hold both ourselves and the stories we encounter during our research like tender companions, in order that we can become the listeners that they are calling upon us to be. Thanks. Okay, hello everyone. Well, I'm not um, Chris Megson. I'm uh, Claire Finborough. And, um, um, well, I don't know if anyone has seen Cinderella, uh, the panto, Christmas panto at the Hackney Empire. It's um, a kind of latecomer, I think, for show of the year. It's fantastic if you haven't seen it. And in um, Cinderella, um, one of the ugly sisters says, um, she says, um, I know how to say yes in 14 different languages. And then her other ugly sister says, yeah, but you don't know how to say no in any of them. And I didn't know how to say no to Finton when the day before yesterday he said, ah, can you give a paper? So... Um, <laughs> How can you say no to Finton, really? Um, so anyway, the ideas here are quite crudely hacked out of uh, my book that appeared earlier this year, which is on representations of war. And I'm not really sure to what extent they're a paper, or they work as a paper, but they should um, hopefully provide some points of discussion. And completely fortuitously, and not by any design at all, I think that there are definitely echoes with Anna's paper. Right. I have no PowerPoint, I have nothing. Okay. <clears throat> in her chapter, Making Things Invisible, the political anthropologist Carolyn Nordstrom discusses the, la discusses the layers and layers of invisibility surrounding war and surrounding the extra-legal. Equally, in Frames of War, Judith Butler, Butler points to the not-seeing in the midst of seeing that occurs when dehumanising frames restrict what is perceivable and what isn't perceivable in times of war. 
While there's a perception that images of war distributed by the dominant media and that we see all the time are increasingly graphic, on the contrary, those dominant media tend to sublimate suffering into ceaselessly recurring sensationalist yet sanitised clichés. The art historian John Taylor says, and I'm quoting him, the press is not dedicating to forcing its audience to view horrific imagery and usually represents grisly events in a restrained and a polite voice. So for John Taylor, the civility of restraint that typifies war reporting should be replaced by a civility towards the civilians who endure war. He says, the use of horror is a measure of civility. The absence of horror in the representation of real events indicates not propriety so much as a potentially dangerous poverty of knowledge among newsreaders. What else can it mean when reports are polite in the face of atrocity and war? But when I write about theatrical representations of torture and other human rights abuses, I ask myself whether uninhibited depictions of torture, both on stage and in my own writing, might injure further the already damaged civility of torture victims, thereby perpetuating, perhaps, what Slavoj Žižek termed in relation to the Abu Ghraib photos of humiliated Iraqis that we saw on the front pages of newspapers and on TV screens and on the internet in 2004, what he called torture as spectacle. So is there, contra what John Taylor says, indeed a role to be played by a kind of politeness or a kind of restraint in my writing about torture? Now, I have to add, and this is something we can perhaps talk about afterwards, but I, I have to add that I'm referring here specifically to writing about the representation of actual victims of torture and not fictional ones. I think there is a distinction to be made, and you know this could be debated further, but I think there's a distinction to be made between documentary theatre, which I'm going to talk about here, where the primary source is people who are living or people who have died or been tortured or been killed... And then fiction, which I think by definition is a genre the very purpose and the very preserve and privilege of which is to provide the creative and moral freedom to explore and expose the bleakest, also the most utopian, the bleakest realms of the human imagination. To condemn as insensitive or voyeuristic descriptions, for example, in Dante's Inferno of, and I'm quoting him, legs that bled from flanks pulled open, ripped up sharp by sharp fangs, I think is surely to fail to comprehend the poet's capacity to imagine the basest places that the human and the non-human worlds can inhabit. Now, in my book, I examined a range of works that since the start of the 21st century have staged torture. Today, I'm going to focus on just one, which is tactical questioning scenes from the Bahamusa inquiry of 2011, which was what has come to be known as a tribunal play. These tribunal plays were mainly staged at the Tricycle Theatre in West London, and they attempted to create as close a mimetic reproduction of a public judicial inquiry as possible, using a technique known as verbatim, where witness testimonies are quoted word for word in the play. So Bahamusa was a hotel receptionist in Basra in Iraq. 
In September 2003, along with six other Iraqis, Bahamusa was arrested by members of the 1st Battalion Queen's Lancashire Regiment, the QLR, who had found a cache of weapons and fake ID cards in the hotel. And they therefore suspected this hotel of being used as a hiding place for insurgents. With the aim of extracting intelligence from these seven men, members of the QLR conducted what they term tactical questioning. Um, it, the US also used this, they called it enhanced interrogation techniques. And I don't know if you listened to the news just this morning, but there's a UN uh, rapporteur who is trying to get into Guantanamo but is being prevented from doing so because there's evidence that these enhanced interrogation techniques are still being used. So... Um, tactical questioning, obviously, is the name of the play. Over the next 48 hours, the detainees were subjected to physical and psychological torture, which culminated in Bahamusa's death in British custody. The British pathologist who conducted a post-mortem found 93 separate injuries consistent with a systematic beating on Bahamusa's body. The other detainees were also tortured and their witness statements, which are available online, everyone can see them in the Bahamusa Public Inquiry documentation, they reveal long-term psychological trauma to the people who survived. Nicholas Kent, the artistic director of the Tricycle Theatre at the time when the play was staged, um, staged many tribunal plays and he argues for the important role of this form of theatre because it renders public inquiries accessible to the general public of non-experts, like most of us. In the case of tactical questioning, it was the Guardian journalist Richard Norton Taylor who condensed nearly 250 witnesses who gave multiple statements and 119 days of the Bahamusa public inquiry, which took place in 2009. He condensed them into a slim volume with a cast of just 11 characters. So I ask here how I feel when transcripts of evidence testifying to appalling human rights abuses are relocated from courtroom to tribunal theatre and then from tribunal theatre into my own theatre criticism, my own writing. The audience of tactical questioning hears in some considerable detail the torture which the prisoners were subjected to. For reasons that will hopefully become apparent as my argument develops, I decline to relate those, torture, uh, those descriptions of torture that were presented in the play. The death of Bahamusa is described in particularly explicit terms owing to the fact that Norton Taylor, who compiled the play, includes scenes where the counsel to the inquiry general, the QC, presses witnesses for increasingly detailed descriptions. When cross-questioning one of the perpetrators of the torture, the British soldier Donald Payne, the QC asks, where were their kicks and punches directed? To which Payne replies, various parts. The QC then enumerates each part of Bahamusa's body, asking Payne every time if he harmed that particular part of the body. Payne insistently, and no doubt very ashamedly, repeats uh, various parts. The cumulative effect, and I'm not repeating what the, the details that are included in the play. The cumulative effect of the QC's inventory of Bahamusa's body parts is to build an image of an increasingly violated victim. Norton Taylor even includes in the play a moment where the QC elicits from a witness the precise sound that Bahamusa's head made when it struck the floor. 
Summing up the treatment that the prisoners underwent, one of the soldiers in the play, who's quoted in the play, describes, he says, when the detainees were originally arrested, they were tidily dressed and not in any kind of distress. The next time I saw them in the temporary detention facility, they looked like they'd been in a car crash. Most of the abuse suffered by Bahamusa is presented in tactical questioning by means of textual description. But the audience not only heard in vivid detail descriptions of the torture, but in the production they also viewed, projected onto a screen, or onto various screens, illustrative visual material from the um, actual inquiry, from this um, judicial inquiry, including an extract of video in which hooded, plastic-cuffed detainees are screamed at. They also saw photos, graphic photos, of Bahamusa's injuries, which were described by the chairman of the inquiry as quite horrendous, and which I also decline to describe here. Repeated again and again from different angles, viewpoints and perspectives, accumulated during the production's 100 minutes, the description of Bahamusa's torture was quite unrelenting. Now, in an actual public inquiry, the aim of describing torture in such explicit detail is, of course, to afford visibility and audibility to those who have suffered atrocities and to prosecute those who are outside the law. Councils must cross-examine witnesses, and it's in a witness's interest to describe an atrocity in as much detail as possible so that the judge in a trial or the chairman in an inquiry might ensure that justice is done. But what are the ethics of including this kind of exposure in a piece of theatre, or indeed in an academic paper like this one that's describing theatre? In his very painstaking description of a selection of the Abu Ghraib photos, it's almost as if the performance scholar John Mackenzie forensically observes the scenes of objection. Abjection. Mackenzie then self-consciously admits that his very analysis, I'm quoting him, could itself contribute to the systematic violence it seeks to critique. It could perpetuate the media shock rather than counter it. However, Mackenzie concludes that to withdraw and refuse to cite the violence, whether in words or in images, is precisely the move made and encouraged by the Bush administration. So Mackenzie decides that the risks of producing the photos or writing about them in as graphic a description as he does, are, he says these risks are great, but the risks of not doing so are greater still. I'm not necessarily criticising Mackenzie, and I think it's an incredibly sensitive um, uh, article that he writes about the photos. But my reasons for advocacy, so my uh, reasons for advocating a kind of restraint or a kind of politeness, coming back to what John Taylor says in my, one of my opening quotations, my reasons for advocating this kind of restraint in representations of torture have nothing to do with a patriotic desire, often fanned by governments like the Bush administration, not to weaken support for war by exposing the atrocities that war causes. Nor does my call for restraint have to do with following the dominant media's compliance in representations of war with normative values that seek to provide us with a cosy viewing experience as opposed to uh, you know, um, uh, encouraging us to turn over or turn off because we're disgusted with what we see. Instead, I'm concerned about the objectification of the person subjected to torture. Iraqi prisoners at Abu Ghraib and Basra were maltreated, they were violated, they were shamed and humiliated. 
They were objectified in the extent to which they were deprived of their agency and integrity. Bahamusa can't speak on his own behalf now because, of course, he's dead. I'm concerned about relegating him and his fellow victims to objects of others' discourse rather than subjects of their own. Jacques Rancière complains in The Emancipated Spectator. He says, we see too many nameless bodies, too many bodies incapable of returning the gaze that we direct at them, too many bodies that are an object of speech without themselves having a chance to speak. I think we also have to consider that whereas in the global north there's a near blackout on the media coverage of civilian casualties of war, Victims from the global south are habitually paraded in the dominant media in all their pitiable misery. For the geographer Derek Gregory, this structuring of perception is a legacy of colonialism in that the lives of those inhabiting the global north are considered to be more valuable than those from the former imperial colonies. Bearing in mind, I think, the medieval use of torture and execution with which Saddam Hussein tyrannised the Iraqi population before he was deposed in 2003, and the humiliating abuse that some of the forces within the US-led coalition visited on Iraqi captives after 2003, might it not be appropriate not to degrade Bahamusa's body further by indulging in graphic material? That's a question. There are other reasons also, I think, for restraint. In her analysis of that Abu Ghraib photos, Susan Sontag looks backwards through the camera lens and she inquires about the complicity of the soldiers who took the photos of the abuse. For her, the photographers were equally complicit in the world of hatred and humiliation instigated by the torturers. Likewise, Jean Baudrillard refers to taking the photos as the excessiveness of a power, designating itself as abject and pornographic. And I think in this respect, I don't know if you've followed the controversy around um, Ed Sheeran's comic relief um, video that's recently been accused of a kind of poverty porn. I'm talking more... Baudrillard talks about war porn, but I think there are equivalents with this idea of poverty porn as well. <clears throat> Of course, theatre-goers and theatre-critics like myself don't choose actively to torture or debase characters on stage. But if, as Sontag states, images, and I would add words, not only record history, but they define viewers and they define authors, how do our representations of torture define us as theatre-makers or theatre-critics? So... Rather than civility, the kind of civility that John Taylor advocates, I'd like here to appeal to the notion of dignity. The UN Declaration of Human Rights refers to the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family. And I guess I'd like to add non-human family to that as well. According to international law, all humans are worthy of dignity. Amongst experts, there's little consensus as to what dignity, which is a relative and constantly evolving term, which denotes worth, actually means. Now, by addressing the amnesia that deletes from history the human rights abuses perpetrated during wars, I think that plays like tactical questioning and a host of others staged in the new millennium do contribute in very valuable ways to hoping that these violations won't take place in the future. <clears throat> Likewise, writing about this kind of theatre hopefully extends the audibility, visibility and speakability of this hidden, covert, covert and dark area of human activity. But how can we present sufferers of torture with the dignity of which they've been so appallingly divested? 
It's a question, I think, of presenting the actual subject of torture, whose very intimacy is no longer intact, with what Elaine Scarry in The Body in Pain describes as the greatest possible tact. She says, the greatest possible tact for the most intimate realm of another human being's body is the implicit or explicit subject. And I think, hopefully, this speaks, in fact, to the ideas of tenderness and companionship um, that, uh, that um, Anna has just talked about. And tact, of course, involves touch in, the same, in a similar way to tenderness being embodied and also being a stretching, a, a, a reaching out. So with all of the difficulty that it involves, I think it's tact and a consideration for the dignity of victims of torture and other forms of injustice that must lead my writing and my research. Thank you. <laughs>